You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. In this episode, China's challenge to US primacy. Mali talks with Oriana Schuyler Mastro on her latest project. Louisa and Dion from our cyber team chat Indigenous engagement in STEM and cyber policy. But first up, what role does big tech have in countering the spread of violent extremism and terrorist content online? Jake from our cyber team recently spoke with Vijay Padmanabhan, Google's lead in countering violent extremism and hate speech, to find out how to better tackle this problem. Vijay, as a starting point for our conversation this afternoon, I thought we might begin with the initiatives that have emerged as a reaction to the terrible uh, shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand earlier this year. So the Christchurch call led by the New Zealand government um, has provided new momentum to efforts to counter violent extremist content uh, by defining some specific mechanisms. Uh, to inhibit its distribution. Now, ASPE is a member of the Christchurch Calls Advisory Network, mm-hmm. and the governments of New Zealand and Australia um, have a really significant stri- stake in driving the initiative forward. So I'm, I'm wondering from an industry perspective, do you feel that the Christchurch Call has the right balance between stakeholders, government, industry, civil society? I do. You know, I think the Christchurch call uh, really builds on things that industry has been doing for a long time. No, it's interesting. When I think back to the world as it existed um, in 2015, 2016, we were doing a lot of informal cooperation with our industry partners. Um, and then at some point, it became clear that we needed to be able to share hashes, be able to share content IDs with each other. And that began informally. Uh, we created a database. And then finally, in 2017, we got to the creation of the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism, which is an industry organization that features the biggest players. Um, Google, of course, is a member, but also Twitter, Facebook, Microsoft, and now a whole range of additional players. Um, and so we had, through GIFCT, set up a company-to-company communication channel. Um, what the Christchurch, the horrible tragedy in Christchurch um, indicated to us was that while it was good that we had this industry cooperation, we really needed to take partnerships to the next level. Um, and what the Christchurch call has done is it's created a more formalized mechanism for communication between companies and government and between companies. Um, and having seen how this mechanism performed during the recent um, tragedy in Halle, Germany, um, I can say that I think it was a really good start. Um, what we ended up seeing was that governments were able to communicate with companies about what they were seeing out there in terms of content. Um, I myself spent the entire day, I think 18 hours, I'm talking to colleagues over at Microsoft and Twitter, et cetera, about what's happening um, on their platforms. And we were able to collectively prevent the content from going viral. So I think that was a sign that the, you know, the right players are being engaged here. In Australia, we introduced some legislation uh, quite quickly after the, mm-hmm. the Christchurch shootings, um, so the Abhorrent Violent Material Act. So I'm interested in your view on not necessarily that act and that piece of legislation in particular, but the kinds of legislative amendments that governments are introducing in response to these events and whether or not they provide appropriate incentives for, for platforms like Google to engage with government. Well, I think the most important thing to take away is that, generally speaking, we share the same objectives that governments have, right? We don't want violent materials on our 
products any more than you all want to see violent material products, if you're government, of course, or civil society. Mm -hmm. I think we're all coming at these problems from a really you know, common perspective. Um, I think one thing to be very cautious about as you're going about regulating is thinking that technology companies have the ability to magically detect all of the bad content that exists on our platforms. Um, you know, what my team does is we work on removing bad content from Google platforms. Um, and we do have machine learning technology, whether it's smart matching or classifiers, that do a job of going out and finding content before our users find it. However, there are real important limits to how good that technology is. One of those things is that where an event like Christchurch happens, where the content has never been circulated before, we've never seen it before, there's going to be a lag between the time where the event happens and our ability to act on the content. Um, and legislation like AVM that would suggest that companies are held strictly liable um, based on the presence of content on their platforms fails to recognize the technological limitations that we face. I think a much more reasonable approach to legislation is one that involves a notice that's being provided by relevant authorities and then an expected time for us to act to remove that content. Um, that seems to be a more promising legislative approach from my perspective. Okay, okay. And now what about these cross-industry mechanisms that are being established, like the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism and the Content Incident Protocols? Are they sufficiently robust? Uh, do they have the potential to inhibit the exploitation of kind of the openness of the internet? That's a great question. So uh, I think, first of all, industry cooperation is critically important. I mean, you look at where we were a few years back where some of the bigger players um, in the industry, Google included, YouTube included, um, had challenges associated with terrorist content that were on our platforms. Um, and I think industry cooperation has reduced the prevalence of this kind of content on, on our platforms. And so, um, as I sort of said earlier, the content incident protocol was really important in preventing uh, the shooting footage related to Hala from going viral across the platforms. Uh, that said, I do think there are still some important limitations in terms of what we can reasonably expect industry cooperation to do. The first of these things is that not all of the platforms are frankly part of the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism. Uh, we wish more companies would join and we're trying to help small companies develop the capacity that they need to be able to be members in this. But there are, there are platforms, whether it's for philosophical reasons or resource reasons, that are not part of this effort. And so um, we continue to see content appear on these fringe platforms. And so I think that's one, one source of concern. Um, and then the other thing is that <clears throat> there have to be sort of shared standards that exist across media and technology. And we don't have those shared standards, I think, at this time. And so sometimes we do see incidents, I think Christchurch was a good example, where the content was appearing across all of the technology platforms. Then you had other media folks that were amplifying the messages that were coming um, from, from uh, Brent and Tarrant. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, there's still work to be done to develop industry standards that make sense. Uh, from an industry perspective, do you have a, a clear picture of what success looks like? 
That is a really great question, right? I think there are a few things I think that, that we want to do. First of all, I think the whole industry can do a better job from a trust and safety perspective. You know, as somebody who works in trust and safety, I recognize that we can do a better job in terms of developing technology to identify bad content before it appears. We can improve our human capacity to review content and have appropriate context taken into account. We can continue to work on product design to make sure that we are not promoting or suggesting bad content to users. But I do think we all need to recognize that as good as we want to get from a trust and safety perspective, there's always going to be bad actors out there that are seeking to take advantage of the free flow of information. And they have incredibly strong incentives to do so. And so I always joke that we're in kind of a cat and mouse game, right? You know, they're modifying their approaches to distributing content based upon our technology. And then we catch up with them and they do another modification. And so what that means is that just as important as all the work we're doing is it is equally and critically important that we empower our users to be able to use internet products safely. And so Google is investing in a lot of different programs, one of them here in Australia with media literacy programs that are designed to improve the capacity of users to engage with information. Vijay, thank you so much for your time. To quote my colleague Dion Deval, before we close the gap, we need first to close the information technology gap for Indigenous Australians. Dion is an Indigenous engagement specialist working with Aspie's cyber team, and he was named 2018 ACT Australian of the Year for his service to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander business community. Dion and Louisa recently spoke about how to improve Indigenous engagement in the cyber industry and their first cyber camp for Indigenous kids. Dion, can you tell us a bit about your background? Yes, um, so I'm an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man, um, originally from Darwin, lived in Canberra for 25 years and um, had a long career in uh, Aboriginal affairs, in health, education and justice, and have a Bachelor of Applied Science in Health Education and uh, very interested in helping Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But I've always had a really keen interest and been fascinated with IT. But when I was growing up in Darwin, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for someone like me, an Aboriginal kid to be around anybody that had any type of connection with IT or a career in IT and so it was actually very foreign and I was was interested in it but was kind of discouraged um, to do that in terms of study when I when I went to university. In fact I was discouraged from even going to um, university and was told by a teacher that I should probably do a trade. Um, I didn't listen to that fortunately, went on to university but um, chose a, a career path in health um, uh, health and education and community development and in the last 10 years I've been a businessman mm -hmm. and have used my business acumen to step into the field of IT and came across fantastic people that worked here at Aspie and the rest is history but we're working together to, to try to create opportunities and broaden the scope and possibilities of you know opening conversations about you know, Aboriginal participation in IT through mm -hmm. cyber security and all sorts of things. So that was a long-winded answer, <laughs> but that is in a nutshell, a big nutshell. So we first got to know you through your work with Yera, which is still one of your main businesses that yes. you're working with. Um, so you can tell us a bit about what Yera does and then kind of link it to what we're now doing at Aspie and kind of where yes. we're hoping to head with um, our collaboration with you and with Yera. Yes, well, I started the business era a couple of years ago, uh, again, to get into 
the IT industry without knowing anything about IT to, to take a step of faith and, and see how that, how that went. It was really about, again, opening up opportunity for myself and other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people mm. to get into the industry, to get mm. into the sector. And so Yero is all about um, IT, IT re uh, recruitment. Uh, I also run an Indigenous entrepreneur program through there and have, uh, again, tried to connect with uh, people in the IT industry, and they've been very um, generous and forthcoming, and um, don't really uh, have not really cared about the fact that I don't have a background in IT. They see that there is a, a lack of participation with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the sector, and the, and so by chance. Um, coming to meet with uh, Alison Howe, who is currently working here in Aspie um, uh, with you guys. Um, I was introduced to Fergus Hansen, who has uh, a passion for, you know, inclusivity and um, doing things outside the box and uh, really wanting to help Indigenous Australians uh, around participation in this industry. And I think mm -hmm. that using cyber security and um, the development of um, our Indigi Cyber Camp, which we had last Saturday at, at uh, Questacon, is a fantastic way of being able to showcase the fact that this is um, an industry that is accessible mm -hmm. and that there is a, a keen interest from the Aboriginal community. We had 17 kids participate and parents come from, you know, interstate, from New South Wales, from as far as Jarvis Bay, drove two and a half hours just to get here that morning. So I think the vibe and the participation and the, the whole feel of the day mm -hmm. just goes to show that there is a need and that, you know, we can continue to do this and, and, and really develop it. I think that's probably a good point. <clears throat> we can jump in and listen to some of the footage from the first cyber camp that we had last week. So we're here at first in Digi Cyber Camp. It's uh, at Questacon, which is super exciting. We're having a really fun day so far. Hi, I'm Caleb and I really like picking the locks today in the morning. Uh, I'm Brayden and I also like the picking locks. Can you tell me what about the locks you like to do? Well, just the way that I found out how to pick the locks and like what I had to do. The picking locks is really cool because it teaches you how to problem solve and how to think logically and how to find a solution. Do you think that's really important? Um, yeah. So now I want to ask you a question about the Cyber Skills Day. Are you interested in cyber and you interested in doing things with technology and science? I love technology, so I want to know how, how I can stay safe, so yeah. And how else can you stay safe? We're learning about passwords. Make it very strong and not use a, try not to use the same letter twice and use letters, symbols and numbers. So it would be hard for the hacker. How much fun was that? It was amazing and I think it just again shows that there is an excitement, there's a buzz out there in the community about we didn't have much time to advertise but we got it out there and got it on all of our social media channels and Aspie got it out to all their media channels and um, uh, did some press releases and so forth and I think uh, it just really created a fantastic vibe on the day. But, uh, you know, the workshop is interesting. It's interactive. It's hands-on. Aboriginal people are very visual and hands-on in terms of their learning. Um, and so it was a really good fit around cultural stuff. We had a, um, Selena Walker, who's a local Ngunnawal uh, woman and the granddaughter of... Uh, 
Arnie Agnes Shea, um, uh, come and give a welcome to country. So we made it quite cultural in that respect. You know, there were parents um, allowed to participate. That's really good in terms of making it uh, the, the those sorts of um, camps and programs culturally safe and culturally appropriate and just quite relaxed. Um, I think that, you know, you yourself saw how the kids interacted and how much fun they had. And I think that that's what's really important to make these things fun um, because if, if they're having fun, it's not like they're learning. So um, it was just really cool. But I think also we need to create these opportunities. And uh, I spoke about this a bit, a bit in the piece that I wrote for the strategist is that my experience growing up was that I wasn't exposed to IT in any way, shape or form. And so I think that this is a first in this region. It's still not happening a lot around Australia and we need to continue to develop these camps so that, that this industry is accessible and that these kids can understand that they have the opportunity to participate, to study, to work in, in mm -hmm. any way, shape or form because the industry is so diverse that they totally. could be technical or they yeah. might not, but they might not be technical. Yeah. But <clears throat> uh, in terms of a career option and career choice, they need to be shown and um, shown practically uh, that, you know, there are Aboriginal people participating, working as professionals in the space, and that they have the opportunity to, to participate also in the future. In your strategy piece, there were two parts that really um, stuck out to me. And the first one was talking about how STEM and cyber and IT, it's just going to, it's the future. Every, every job's going to have something to do with that. And so that's why it's such an important field to mm. grow. And the other one um, was something I hadn't heard before, and I'd love you to, to uh, talk a little bit more about it, was the importance of these fields um, for Indigenous people to stay in community yes. and to and to not have to move to some of the one of the yep. big cities. Um, I, that was something that was you know an amazing insight to yeah. to hear about. Yeah, well, the, a lot of our um, people still do live on their communities. These communities are very remote. Um, uh, a long, it takes a long time to get there. It takes a long time to get out of there. Sometimes they're stuck in these communities because of the wet season, the dry season, particularly mm -hmm. in the north places like Kakadu, Manangrida. Um, you, you'll be stuck in there for months on end. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you, you, you um, uh, can't have, you know, good businesses. You can't um, thrive and survive in these communities without having to leave. A lot of our people have to leave their communities for primary school, high school, um, university, or even just to find... Um, employment. But uh, what I talked about in the strategist piece was that, well, what if we use technology to kind of harness um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and the, the um, richness of that culture and share it with the world virtually? Um, and if we can, Aboriginal people are very innovative. And that's why I think business is so such a good fit for them. Um, and I think if we skill our people up, Aboriginal people up, with um, various uh, skills around and in IT and in the sector, that that will give them the ability to use that innovation to create things that are not only able to sustain them um, and keep them from having to leave their communities, but create economic development and independence for Aboriginal people in communities um, through online cultural businesses or, um, you know, there's just a whole myriad of ways that, you know, we can we can trade and not just trade within Australia but internationally because there is an international interest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Preserving our language and our, and our skills and um, everything that we have with respect to Aboriginal culture and the diversity of that that richness I think needs to be captured and um, and and savoured and shared with the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such an exciting project. I think just before we sum up for today, I just wanted to ask you what's next for the project? Where are we going to head in 2020? I'm hoping that we can roll the program out uh, into the future nationally. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that we can have 
you know, um, really good collaboration and um, support by other organisations that are really appropriate, like Questacon. Uh, it's a fantastic venue to have yep. um, uh, a cyber camp at. So it would be great to have a few of those um, here in Canberra throughout the, the coming years, three or four possibly, have, you know, Indigenous children coming from interstate to possibly making making it a week or a couple of days where they can go and visit Parliament House, old and new, look at the Aboriginal tent embassy, learn about the history of this country and possibly connect with the traditional owners, the Ngunnawal people um, of this area um, and maybe have a cultural exchange of some kind. I'm not sure, but I think really keeping um, it fun um, really hands-on and are practical in terms of making them understand the connection between, you know, everyday life and the importance of IT in, in, into the future. The workplace, the workplace is going to look very different, I think, for all of us um, in the next decade. And I think that, you know, these kids are our future and we can show them how to really um, be able to do that without leaving their country. Thanks, Dion. Thank you. Finally, Marley interviewed Oriana Schuyler Mastro, Assistant Professor of Security Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. They spoke about her recent book, The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime, and her latest project exploring China's challenge to US primacy. Can you talk to us about your recent book, The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime? Sure. I think a lot of political scientists, and rightly so, spend a lot of time focusing on the causes of war and how to prevent war. But unfortunately, wars still occur. So this book focuses on a different issue, which is mainly how to bring wars to a conclusion as quickly as possible. And it looks specifically at states' decisions about whether or not to talk to their enemies. So there's very interesting patterns that in every war, since World War II, almost every war, there is one belligerent that refuses to talk throughout the whole conflict. And so this is an obstacle to peace because most of our wars nowadays are limited and in some sort of negotiated settlement. So getting countries to the table is very important. And so the book basically goes through mostly Asian wars, uh, cases that focus on China, India, uh, Vietnam, and then the United States, the Korean War, Sino-Indian War, and the Vietnam War, and makes the argument, which is very commonsensical, that states uh, in the weaker position don't want to talk because they're afraid that will actually encourage aggression against them. Mm -hmm. And so they have to adequately demonstrate strength before they're willing to come to the table. And so in the book, there's a number of recommendations for policymakers, defense planners about how to think about conflict if you want to actually encourage the other side to talk to you. Could you tell us a bit about some of those policy recommendations? Yeah, so the first thing is that escalation does not work. Mm -hmm. It actually exacerbates this issue. So if you imagine a state is worried about looking weak and giving in under pressure, you put more pressure on them, mm. they're even more concerned about looking weak. Now, of course, the caveat is if you put enough pressure such that the other side can no longer physically fight, it might work. Mm -hmm. But the United States couldn't even get that level against North Vi against Hanoi, against North Vietnam and the Vietnam War, and that asymmetry in power was huge. Mm. So it's very rare we get there. So the United States has a historical tendency to rely on escalation to get to negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, so does China. Mm -hmm. Both countries believe that this is a strategy that works. But in the historical cases, I show that it's a strategy that never works. So my first recommendation is to you know, not 
not consider escalation a good strategy to get the other side to the table, but instead you actually need third-party mediators to offer guarantees of protection mm-hmm. uh, for in most cases if the other side is going to talk. In a um, potential conflict between China and the U.S., who would a potential third-party mediator even be? So in this case, I'm looking at mediation very differently than the traditional literature. Most people okay. think mediators either are there to impose something, mm. right? So we think about like UN peacekeeping missions mm. or uh, internal conflicts, civil wars. And so you need powerful countries like the United States to impose something on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, a lot of what is needed is a degree of deniability mm-hmm. uh, or positive inducements given by the other side. So if you're a country and you're afraid that you're going to look weak by agreeing to talk, if outside states offered you a positive inducement, like if the UN came together and had a resolution in support of one of the sides that was the most reluctant, in this case would probably be China because it's still in the weaker position, Mm -hmm. then China could say, I'm agreeing to talk, not because the war is going poorly, not because I'm weak, but because I've been offered Mm. this agreement or this this inducement um, by a group of other nations. So they don't have to be more powerful than the ones that are fighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just has to be something that allows the weaker country some deniability. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. It makes a lot of sense. An Australian think tank, the Lowy Institute, recently released a global diplomacy index that shows for the first time China has more overseas um, or a larger diplomatic network than the US. Um, Do you think this sort of relates to your research around China's willingness to try and negotiate through some of their tensions? So I think mostly what this demonstrates is uh, the Chinese strategy for building power and influence in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm I mainly focus on military issues yeah. when I look at China, uh, but that is very short sighted actually, and that's why I've sort of branched out and to look at political, economic, tech issues because okay. what China is trying to do is basically le- leverage any possible. Thing that they have at their disposal mm-hmm. to have influence in countries around the world. And diplomacy is a huge aspect of it, largely because China also is in a weaker military position. Mm-hmm. They look at history and they realize the number one thing that thwarts the rise of another country is the response or an aggressive response of the established power, in this case, the United States. So they've been trying to build power in a way that does not challenge the United States militarily for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Chinese military, which is now very much a problem regionally, that also did not happen until like 10, 15 Mm. years ago, right? The Chinese military was very backwards for a very long time. So they focused primarily on economic and political power, uh, using international institutions to get their way, diplomatic and legal maneuvers. And it's only now that they're starting to focus on the military aspect. So the fact that China is focusing on diplomacy demonstrates, you know, that they are extremely entrepreneurial mm-hmm. about how to build power. And the United States has always pursued this strategy really of focusing only on a few key strategic countries. Mm-hmm. And that's not the nature of our world anymore. Obviously, the U.S.-Australian alliance is critical, but having Australia and Japan on your side is not enough, mm. right? China has everybody else, yeah. right? So they're very good at getting the numbers. And in this day and age, numbers do matter. 
So that ties quite well into some research I'm doing, which is about Chinese coercive economic behaviour. And I'm sort of trying to build a database of as many examples I can find of China using economic pressure um, to sort of get countries on side. Do you have any ideas about how um, countries like the US and Australia and other countries can sort of counter Chinese economic coercion? And the number one reason China uses this tool is because it works. Mm. It's effective. <laughs> They're able to isolate countries and then everyone else who's not immediately affected doesn't want to stick their neck out because they're afraid of inviting mm. Beijing's wrath. If we had more coordination such that every time China tried to use economic coercion against Australia or against Norway or against the Philippines, mm -hmm. you had a majority of OECD countries putting trade penalties mm. on China as a result, China would stop doing that. Mm. The problem is really back to what we discussed before about diplomacy, uh, countries like the United States and Australia putting in the diplomatic efforts to coordinate such responses and the willingness of countries to come along. As long as China can pick us off one mm. by one and it's an effective strategy, there's very little we can do. Because mm. I have heard a few people call for that sort of multilateral response, but it seems hard to believe sometimes that Australia would really stick their neck out for some country in the Pacific that's getting economically targeted right. or Well, there's small... safety in numbers. There right? is, So yeah. that's the thing is mm. you're only sticking your neck out if you're the only one. But if it's Australia and the EU mm. and can't you know all the NATO countries, Canada, the United States, China's not going to punish all of us. Yeah, right. They so can't. Yeah, they can't. So mm. it, we have protection in numbers, but the issue is again, countries fearful uh, that they're going to be targeted. targeted. Yeah. Well, can you talk to us about your new project, which, uh, from my understanding, is looking at China's challenge to U.S. primacy? Yeah, so I just started a couple months ago uh, on this project. It's kind of evolving. It looks like there's going to be sort of two components. The mm -hmm. first is inspired by the current debate about China, which seems like, at least in the United States, there's a lot of mirror imaging happening. There's this view that China is going to want exactly what the United States has, mm -hmm. and they're going to try to gain it the way the United States did. Mm -hmm. And I, as a China specialist, I just don't see any indication of that. Actually, the opposite. I read a lot of Chinese writings that talk about, for example, how foreign military intervention is a tool of foreign policy, which is very popular in the United mm. States, <laughs> is very uh, costly and mm. ineffective at achieving foreign policy goals. So I don't see why China would want to build military bases around the world, have this global military presence, and become militarily involved. I see them outside of the region largely using and economic, economic and political power. Mm -hmm. So this motivated me to look into this project of how do we understand the ambitions of a country mm -hmm. uh, and what strategies they might pursue to achieve those ambitions. And what I found is whether it's the scholarly research or whether uh, it's, I've been doing a lot of interviews at the Pentagon about it, mm -hmm. we approach this issue in a very haphazard way. There's no framework to tell us what type of information, whether it's what a country says, their capabilities, their behavior, internal characteristics, is the most reliable to try to assess what they want? And then we also muddle together what they want from how they plan on getting it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, what China wants is not problematic, but the way they pursue it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the way they pursue it is not problematic, but what they want is. And so for strategic purposes, it's important uh, to uh, pair that out. So I'm basically trying to devise a framework to help us better understand 
um, how to assess Chinese intentions and their strategies for building power. And then throughout the book, I'll have different chapters on what I think are the key critical areas we're interested in. For example, China's behavior in international institutions, mm -hmm. China's approach to the South China Sea, China's approach to uh, the economic uh, global system and international norms. So those might evolve over time since my last book took me five years to write. Okay. So, <laughs> so this one's just in the beginning stages, but I think it's an important question. Yeah. And we need to think more rigorously mm -hmm. about some of these issues. Yeah, I agree. Sounds fascinating. I look forward to seeing it when it eventually comes out. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money, and that's also it from us for this year. We'll be taking a break over the holidays, and I'll be taking an even longer break as I head off on maternity leave for the next year. The podcast will be back early next year with a new host, and until then, have a wonderful and safe festive season.